The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer. And now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. Well, greetings and salutations. I think that's, uh, who said that? Greetings and salutations. I think it was Play-Doh. No, but I'm talking about the cartoon character. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I think it was Winnie the Pooh or something. I'm not. I'm not really sure. <laughs> Greetings and salutations. Oh no, I know who it was. It was. It was um, uh, Charlotte from Charlotte's Web. She would say. She would say to uh, Zuckerman's famous pig. She would say, uh, "Greetings and salutations," and she would sew it into her web. And uh, that that just made everybody cheery and happy and full of serenity. Well, today, folks, I hope we can uh, do even a little better than that and uh, uh, sew into our web of success, freedom, and uh, recovery uh, some more of this wonderful book, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, that we not only read it, but that we can absorb some of this stuff so we can apply and implement it. And uh, it's good to have you on the show. Chris Schroeder, of course, is uh, the one who's taking us through this wonderful book, uh, in this show, Walking Through the Big Book. And we are on Chapter 8, which is To the Wise. But do you want to say anything before we start this thing, Chris? Yeah, uh, you know, we we finished uh, the main body of the book, uh, Monty, uh, up up through working with others. And a lot of times, uh, you know, big book studies will stop at that point. Uh, I, I think more more often than not, that's what that's what happens. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, uh, the following four chapters are, are overlooked and really aren't looked at closely. I, I'll give you I'll give you for instance the chapter to wives. When I was first handed this book, I thought, okay, I can skip that chapter. I'm not a wife. Right. And then when, when I saw the chat, the family afterward, I, I thought to myself, the family after I don't have a family afterward. My family left. You know, if there was a chapter called the, the family that split when I needed them most, you know, I would read yeah. the chapter. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, but, but there's so much information in, in these chapters. There's, there's principles. Uh, there's philosophy, uh, there's perspectives uh, that can, we can really find guiding if we pay attention to them. I've even heard some people say that after they read two, uh, two actually it's pronounced or spelled out two wives, that uh, they realize it was more for them than their than their wives. You know, there's there's a very very important piece in this. I don't I'm not sure if we'll get to it today. But it's the it's the description of the types of alcoholics right. one two three and four, and it's it's a it, it it explains the progressive scale of alcoholism, and it enables you to place your husband or your loved one uh, uh, into a category. How powerless are they? How much trouble are they in? And I think that information should be used uh, for sponsors for for us. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, I think it's a good gauge, like you know how far da- down the scale have we've gone. Uh, it's invaluable, yes. and it, it's it is in to wives, but it could have been anywhere in this book, and made the made the same kind of sense. Sure. So so folks, if if, if you are sitting there going, I don't I don't know, this is to 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 our wives. Um, I'm going to go get Mary and have her sit down on the couch because she needs to hear this, and I'm going to go out and fix work on the car. No, 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 you stay put. And it's not fair if you and your wife are sitting there or your girlfriend or whoever uh, and you start nudging her with your elbow when you think it applies to her. 
you know, people do that all the time. See, honey, see, um, don't be doing that because. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or underlining the part uh, that says you shouldn't nag. <laughs> yeah, right, and right. Showing that to your wife. Yeah, you bet, you uh, bet. <laughs> you know, Al-Anon has kind of flipped some of this stuff uh, on its head a little bit. But, you know, the alcoholism is a, is a family illness. Uh, yeah. Any legitimate treatment center these days, uh, one of the things they want to do is they want to engage the family. In the, in the recovery and treatment process because they, they realize how, how pivotal it is for, uh, for those closest to an alcoholic to have the right attitude, uh, to have the right behavior when, uh, when you're, you're con- confronted, number one, with uh, an active alcoholic and number two, with one who's uh, struggling their way uh, into recovery. Yeah. So, you know, there's information here we can all use. Uh, you could almost title this chapter to, to the sponsor or to the family member, and, and it, it almost still would, would be valid. Okay, Chapter 8, Two Wives. And this says, uh, there's a little asterisk uh, on here that says, written in 1939 where there were few women in AA. <laughs> that is absolutely true. You know, when you when you look back at some of the history of uh, of this this fellowship and its and its co-founders, you know, you, you look under some rocks and you find some stuff that, that, that didn't make it into the conference approved literature. Uh, but one of the things was is they you know Bill and Bob did not want women in in uh, in AA. I mean, mm-hmm. they they certainly wanted to have them uh, uh, in the meetings, but they. They didn't want them as members mm-hmm. in Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. and uh, there needed to be some things that really changed that for them. Yeah, you know, you have to understand the time. You need to put this all in yeah. context. Uh, uh, the the mid '30s was uh, was a very much different time mm-hmm. uh, than we have today, as far as equality and and uh, e- you know equal rights and and an unequal perspective on uh, the sexes. Uh, back then, it was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a man's world back yeah. then. And they really thought that by bringing women into the, uh, the, as members of the fellowship, that was going to louse it up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they avoided that for a while until uh, 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 Florence, Rankin, Florence Rankin, I believe, was the first one who battled her way into a meeting and insisted on membership. And, you know, they, they thought, oh, all right, okay. You know, they kind of acquiesced. And uh, over the course of time, I believe, I believe, if, if, uh, I believe women are, are nudging toward breaking the 50% barrier in Alcoholics Anonymous mm. today. And that's only in the last several years, but they're, they're inching up on, uh, on, on 50% of the membership. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, so things, things yeah. have changed, and as they should have, uh, really. And, yeah. uh, uh, but, uh, again, why hasn't the, the, um, uh, the discriminatory type of perspective uh, of women uh, that, that comes through in this chapter? Why hasn't it been changed? They're afraid to change anything in this because it's led to so many recoveries. They don't know, they don't know how, how much they can take out without losing some of the magic. Right. So most of, uh, you know, most of the people who are, uh, who are you know, uh, uh, advocates of the book Alcoholics Anonymous uh, get freaked out when there's any motion on any table to make any changes in this book. Mm-hmm. And so we're going we're gonna to have this... Uh, uh, we're going to have this document in, in its present form for a long time to come. Uh, you know, I, I'm in that camp too. I, yeah. You know, I, I would rather explain away explain away some of the problems with how it was written and and the way it was written than I would to allow you know some muttonhead in New York to rewrite it. Yeah, and like you said a long time, I think it was probably one of our first shows. You said there probably isn't any, any group of people that are qualified to do it anyway. You know, uh, here, here's, here's my perspective, okay? Um, everyone, everyone in Alcoholics Anonymous back then had gone through the step. You're, you're very much le- left alone uh, in today's fellowship. And a lot of times people that take service commitments and, you know, climb their way uh, down the service ladder from GSR to, uh, to DSM uh, to, tr- you know, all the way to trustees and board members, there's no litmus test for, hey, have you actually recovered? Have you actually taken the steps? You know, have you gone out and made your amends? How's your prayer meditation? Or, you know, how many people have you worked with? Have you taken through this work? Those aren't questions that get asked. They got asked back, 
around the time that this book was written, but they don't get asked now. So you can you can be placing this document in the hands of people who absolutely have no experience with it, don't understand the importance of it, and, and, you know, don't don't recognize it from an experiential level. Just see it as you know an old book that needs to be re-edited, and you know you you know I, I would never want that to happen because. Um, Back in back in 1939, you know, you're looking at almost 100 percent of the people who had gone through the step. You look uh, you look today in any 12-step fellowship, and you're looking at an extreme minority of people who actually have real experience with the mm-hmm. step. Yeah, I you see know, that. so it's it's a it's a completely different world, and I trust it much less, uh, especially with uh, with foundational uh, literature and, and documents that. You know, uh, define basically what uh, you know what recovery what recovery uh, consists of. Sure, sure. All right, chapter eight. Okay, to wives. Uh, here's another thing about this chapter. Before I get going, this is uh, this is some of the oral tradition that wraps around this chapter. Bill Wilson uh, understands that he needs to needs to address the wives. And he doesn't feel real comfortable doing it. So he asks Ann Smith. Ann Smith is, is Dr. Bob's wife. Ann Smith is also uh, one of the most overlooked figures in, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous history. Uh, Bill Wilson did call her one of the founders. But the fact of the matter is, Monty, was that when Bill moved out to Akron, when he found his new buddy, Dr. Bob, and moved out to Akron, Ann Smith was running Oxford group meetings. Okay, her and Henrietta Cyberling and a number of other people, you know, had this down. They'd been doing it for years, and they would do the the uh, the, the guided meditations, and they, you know, they would read from the Bible, and they would practice these spiritual principles. And Bill and Bob were were basically, you know, coming in and learning from yeah. Ann Smith and Henrietta Cyberling and a number of other other people in the Oxford group. They were learning their spiritual disciplines. You know, so so when Bill Wilson decides I need to have a chapter written by by a wife, you know, he he felt really comfortable aiming that at Ann Smith, mm-hmm. and declined. Now, meanwhile, Lois is waiting in the wings, going, "Oh, he's going to ask me now. He's going to ask me now." <laughs> and he <laughs> never does. Instead, he comes to the conclusion that he should write the chapter to wives. So, uh, so what what we're going to be reading here is basically Bill Wilson pretending he's a wife. <laughs> and, and uh, you know that. Let's just use that as a as a context, and and that should not negate any of the importance of the material in here. Uh, but it is kind of a skewed perspective, and can even lead to to more of uh, uh, the the <laughs> the chauvinistic kind of verbiage that you're going to find in here. Yeah. Uh, but it, but we should set all that aside, and we should look look for uh, look for the principles uh, and the perspective because those are those are right on the money. <clears throat> anyway, to wives. With few exceptions, our book thus far has spoken of men. But what we have said applies uh, uh, quite as much to women. Our activities in behalf of women who drink are on the increase. There is every evidence that women regain their health readily as men if they try our suggestion. You know, again, here Bill is talking about something that he really doesn't have a lot of experience with yet. Mm-hmm. However, he was right. He usually was right. Uh, there really had only been one woman uh, in, the, in the meetings at that time, and, and she relapsed. But for every man who drinks, others are involved. The wife who trembles in fear of the next debauch. The mother and father who see their son wasting away. Among us are wives, relatives, and friends whose problem has been solved, as well as some who have not yet found a happy solution. We want the wives of Alcoholics Anonymous to address the wives of men who drink too much. What they say will apply to nearly everyone bound by ties of blood or affection to an alcoholic. As wives of Alcoholics Anonymous, we would like you to feel that we understand as perhaps few can. We want to analyze mistakes we have made. We want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to be overcome. We have traveled the rocky road. There is no mistake about that. We've had long rendezvous with hurt pride, frustration, self-pity, misunderstanding, and fear. These are not pleasant companions. We have We've been driven to maudlin sympathy, to bitter resentment. Some of us have veered from extreme to extreme. 
ever hoping that one day our loved ones would would be themselves once more. You know, that is one of the saddest things with uh, people who, who love alcoholics. Uh, they're not going to understand the nature of alcoholism. They're really going to keep thinking things like, you know, when it gets really bad, I'm sure he's just going to, you know, stop. Or, you know, uh, it can't get much worse than this. I know he loves me. I mean, you know, there's all of these perspectives that have to do with the misunderstanding that loved ones have that, that, that the alcoholic can do better. Sure. That the alcoholic can stop drinking, that the alcoholic uh, can stop behaving badly. That there's a complete mis- misunderstanding, thinking that if they just really want to, they will. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, that causes uh, that causes a lot of problems. You know, uh, you, you hang in there with somebody, uh, and you're you're not you're not promoting their own recovery. You're not doing things that are conducive to them finding recovery. You're just hoping that they'll hitch up their bootstraps and and get about their life. And that comes from a, a complete misunderstanding of how aggressive. Uh, an illness alcoholism is yeah yeah the the, the expectations and so forth <clears throat> even to the point where you know parents are forever saying this um what did i do wrong he went out yep. and relapsed yeah. what did i do wrong and of course if they don't understand like like many of us who have and go through the program and apply it every day that that's actually a pride thing you know, they don't understand it, though. They haven't had had that kind of thing, and, uh, you know, and, and had anything to um, to apply and implement as far as tools like this. But par- parents and wives, what did I do wrong? What if I had done this? What if I had done that? Doesn't it doesn't it sound like the alcoholic himself? It does. It sounds it sounds just like the alcoholics who, whose ego yeah. wants to take responsibility for both drinking and recovery. You know, yeah. the ego wants to have uh, control, like, you know, I did this, I did that. Or um, One of the things that you hear in, hear in uh, the, the family programs a lot is, um, uh, I didn't cause it, I can't cure it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that's very, very uh, true. This is much more, uh, it's much more about, do you have a body and a mind? that is going to be susceptible to addictive illness. If you do and you partake at all uh, of alcohol uh, or, or drugs, you're, you're going to become addicted or, or alcoholic. It has to do with uh, the, almost a predisposition. And mm-hmm. uh, yes, it can be, it can be inherited. We, you know, we find that, that certain types of families or certain types of uh, uh, ethnic backgrounds have a higher percentage of alcoholism uh it it can it can be inherited but i mean is that really your fault as a parent if if your child has uh addictive tendencies yeah really more a physiological and isn't it it, isn't it uh, environmental isn't it interesting chris isn't it interesting that uh uh (laughs) um we talk a lot about in, in in recovery circles we talk a lot about um you know this is al- uh, this or that is alcoholic thinking or alcoholic behavior or this behavior is the ism and all that stuff and credit some of our behaviors and our selfishness and every- everything else to alcoholism. Um, and it's interesting to me because you can find anybody that is not an alcoholic, anybody that is not a narcotic addict, and they do the same things. They make assumptions. They have unreasonable expectations on people. Uh, they think that you know if they just would have studied harder. I mean, the guy that goes in to pass his final in college and he studied to every degree that he can, and he still doesn't pass. And so he says, "If I had just studied harder," when he couldn't even have studied any harder. So you know, it's kind of like I like what somebody said one time. I was a human being before I was an alcoholic. Yeah, you know. Um Alcohol, alcoholic thinking, you know, is it possible that non-alcoholics think the same way? Yeah, of course. You, know, you, you, would, ha- you would have to say yes. There's a real, <laughs> there's a real uh, pre, there's this, this huge movement today within uh, the 12-step organi- organizations that 
really think, you know, talking about your alcoholic thinking or, you know, the stupid things you did today, or they really think that by going to going and sit, sitting in a circle for an hour and updating everybody about how they're thinking, you know, is 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 conducive to recovery. And, uh, you know, I don't know where that came from, uh, because I'll tell you what, how, how I sponsor, if somebody, if somebody was going to call me up on the phone and say, okay, here, you know, I did all this wrong, and these people are mad at me, and, you know, I went to the store today, and, you know, Annie Griselda came over, and I just can't, and, and just, like, just blither out all this, this updating me on their drama, all they would hear would be a dial tone. Okay. I, I, I am way not interested in what in what's going on. And many times when when I'm sitting in a support group and people are doing that, I'm thinking to myself, why don't you tell a bunch of people that actually care what's going on in your life? Because I'm not one of them. Yeah. You know, uh, what, where that came from, I have no idea. But when somebody calls me up for help and and they, and they they share a situation with them that's a challenge. I give them an exercise to do. It can be uh, it can be do a four step on it. It can be go make an amend on it. It can be pray on it. It can be go work with another alcoholic. I'm going to give them an exercise. I, yeah. I'm not going to sit there and pat them on the head and say, "Oh, you're you know you're doing wonderful. You're doing wonderful." Obviously, they're not doing wonderful if they've still got issues uh, like going. You know, issues are like tissues. You pull one out, another one's going to come out of the box behind it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm more about showing somebody how to resolve everything. You know, uh-huh. Let, let's learn how to live so that we we're not we're not you know we're not constantly churning up all the crap and uh um uh, again i you know i don't know what this this notion is that we should be telling everybody all of this intimate stuff that goes on in uh, in our head and with our families and all this i really i really don't know how how uh, appropriate that is the the same energy you're using to do that you could be uh you could be actually helping another alcoholic yeah you know, you could be talking about a solution. You know, in a beginner's meeting or something like that, it's it's quite appropriate to let them just rant on because, you know, they are still on the spin-dry cycle. Yeah. Uh, but a good beginner's meeting will have a bunch of people in it who've got some time, who've recovered from alcoholism, and can share uh, share their experience, strength, and hope about how you can get away from all of that. Not how... You know, I'm not interested in people that want to help you manage a life that you've already admitted is unmanageable. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's that's the craziest thing that you, that you find. And I, I think I think the reason why uh, some support group meetings have have devolved into you know bad Bob Newhart therapy is is because it it, it comes out of the, the the treatment centers that have group. You know, there's tons of treatment centers that sit you up and sit you around in group, and you know, conflict resolution, and you know, uh, uh, trying to get honest. You know, and, and there's 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 actual you know reasons that in a clinical setting they'll do that with you, but don't bring that into a recovery meeting. It's you know, uh, um, treatment is about discovery. You know. Uh, uh, a twelve-step fellowship is about recovery. Those are really <laughs> two different things, and it, you know it, it's it's time to move away from uh, you know from from the bad Bob Newhart stuff and start yeah. moving forward in your life. You know, it, and I, I I know we got to get back to to wives, but I got it. I got to tell you the thing that always cracks me up is when um, I see or, or I hear about um, that that circle thing of your peers. And then you you share whatever, and then your peers, the other alcoholics uh, uh, that may have just been sober for three days, were they're asked to critique you, and I'm like, what? What are are they? Are they? Are these guys all of a sudden became psychiatrists and doctors, and you know, and they sit there and they rip you apart, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Monty, what's really sad is, is uh, uh, there's been some modern studies that show. That uh, there's no efficacy in the confrontational uh, methodology in treatment. That's right. You know, in other words, sh- you know, from 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 the worst, you know, shaving half of somebody's head and making them beg to have the other half shaved, uh, to to you know, to these confrontational type of groups where you know people just 
people just beat each other up. There's no efficacy in it. In, mm-hmm. in other words, there's 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 nothing that shows that it's that it's helpful at all in the recovery of alcoholism or drug addiction. Yeah. Why people do it is you know it goes all the way back to the early synanon and and uh, oh, yeah. therapeutic community models where you know people are coming out of prison. You know you gotta you gotta keep them in shape somehow. But as far as just addiction and alcoholism, if you're in a if if you're in a treatment modality where that happens all the time, uh, you know you're you're back. You know they haven't read much of the new literature coming out on you know what really works and what doesn't work in treatment. That's all. That's all I'll say. Hey, we could make a lot of money just telling people. Uh, hey, listen, if you're feeling like you're blowing it today. Um, call us up here at Take12Radio.com, and we'll make you a sign to put around your neck that says you're an idiot. Yeah, it'll be the Don Rickles recovery program. <laughs> we'll just scream at you and insult you for half an hour. And and there you go. You know that yeah. that that should you know that should keep you from drinking. You know yeah, somebody yelling right. at you that should keep you from drinking. <laughs> I mean, where do you get this stuff? I, I, you know, I, I don't. I have I have no idea. But again, you know, we're dealing with an incredibly misunderstood illness alcoholism it's, sure. it's misunderstood by people that treat you for it because mm-hmm. you know not all the time not all the time is the person that's treating you from alcoholism an alcoholic who's gone through the 12 steps and had a spiritual awakening a lot of times it's not a lot of times it's somebody who you know graduated a counselor program or you know uh, and and they don't have any experience with it they, they know the theories but knowing the theories and actually being able to share an experience are two different things. Yeah. Again, yeah. Um, discovery versus recovery. Yeah. You know you know what I mean? Yep. Our loyalty and desire that our husbands hold up their heads and be like other men have begotten all sorts of predicament. We, we have been unselfish and self-sacrificing. We have told innumerable lies to protect our pride and our husbands' reputations. We have prayed. We have begged. We have been patient. We have struck out viciously. We have run away. We have been hysterical. We have been terror-stricken. We have sought sympathy. We have had re- retaliatory love affairs with other men. Mm. Our, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a tough one. Our homes have been battlegrounds many an evening. In the morning, we have kissed and made up. Our friends have counseled chucking the men, and we have done so with finality, only to be back in a little while hoping, always hoping. Our men have sworn great solemn oaths that they were through drinking forever. We have believed them when no one else could or would. Then in days, weeks, or months, a fresh outburst. We seldom had friends to our homes, never knowing how or when the men of the house would appear. We could make few social engagements. We came to live almost alone. When we were invited out, our husbands sneaked so many drinks that they spoiled the occasion. If, on the other hand, they took nothing, their self-pity made them killjoys. <laughs> this is ringing bells for me. That's me too. Tell you about me. me too. I'll tell you, every, every single time, uh, you know, so my, my first wife is really the only one that ever saw me drinking. Uh, and, you know, she would make me promise not to drink. This, this one time, Monty, I'm at a Christmas party that her boss is putting on in Colorado. Okay, it's up in one of these McMansions, way up on the mountain. Really rich guy, and she made me pro- promise me you won't drink. Oh, I, I promise, I promise. Well, I found a bottle of vodka somewhere and chugged half of it down, and, and I got, I got blithering, tongue chewing, drunk as a goat. And I remember she dragged me upstairs because I was like hitting on her secretary friends or something. You know? <laughs> she dragged me upstairs and she's yelling at me, "You're, you're embarrassing me! You've embarrassed me! I, you know, I'm gonna go downstairs. I'm gonna get our coats and we're gonna leave before you, you know, before you do something else stupid." And she started shaking me. And when she let me go, I kind of stumbled backwards against the wall, and against the wall was this big, huge painting. It was like some gigantic Renoir, you know, with a real innate, elaborate uh, uh, framework. Right? And I banged into it against the wall, and it came crashing down <laughs> onto the floor. It scared me, so I jumped away, and it fell against the chair and ripped. Oh, my you goodness. You know, this is... <laughs> this is like you know a hundred thousand dollar painting. You should you should have seen the look on her face. Oh man, man! And, you know she's like, oh! it's her boss's his boss painting. I'm sitting there like like not you know chuckling and delirious. Yeah, but 
But this is this is really ringing a bell. Yeah, and the part about about okay, so now we're going someplace where I know I, I I'm, I'm not gonna be able to drink. There's no alcohol there, but it's a party, and, and I'm, I'm thinking, actually, come to the point on the way there. I have I have resolved the fact that I am not going to be able to get any alcohol. So what do I do? I pout. Oh yeah, I'm just Absolutely. I'm not going to have a good know, time. I'm doing this for you. That's I'm right. I'm not happy about it, but I'm doing this for you. And as soon as you get home, <laughs> you know you start drinking like a fish. Yeah. You know, I had a time where my boss said, uh, you know, usually I left work and I got drunk right away. You know, I mm-hmm. went right to the liquor store. Well, he he, he surprised me. He goes. He goes, he goes, Chris, you're, you're coming down to the shore with me. I need to do some work at my house. Get in the car. So, you know, I had to. So I jump in the car with him while we drive down to the shore. We work on his house. I didn't get back home until like quarter to nine. Okay. Uh-huh. So the liquor store was, I'm sorry, it was like quarter to ten. The liquor store was open at ten. And I hadn't done my drinking yet. I usually started my drinking around four thirty, five o'clock. Uh-huh. Now, now I'm behind schedule. Uh-oh. Okay. So I still have to put as much alcohol in my body as as my you know as my my physical craving asks me to. Yeah. So, so instead of drinking from five to nine, I had to drink from ten to two, and I staggered into work the next day, still smelling like vodka. He's like, "What's the matter with you?" Well, you know, I felt like telling him, "Well, you messed up my schedule." <laughs> you know, it's not my fault. You messed up my schedule, but uh, but. Uh, so there, there were times when I, when I had to postpone my drinking, and I was not happy about it. Right. <laughs> but there was never financial security. Positions were always in jeopardy or gone. An armored car could not have brought home the pay envelope. The checking account melted like snow in June. Sometimes there, uh, there were other women. How heartbreaking was this discovery? How cruel to be told they understood our men as we did not. The bill collectors, the sheriffs, the angry taxi drivers, the policemen, the bums, the pals, even the ladies they sometimes brought home. (laughs) Our husbands thought we were so inhospitable. Joy killer, nag, wet blanket, that's what they had said. Next day they would be themselves again and we would forgive and try to forget. We have tried to hold the love of our children for their father. We have told small tots that their father was sick, which was much nearer the truth than we realized. They struck the children, kicked out door panels, smashed treasured crockery, and ripped the keys out of pianos. So one thing I never did, Monty, I was never a piano key ripper. <laughs> but, but, all, but all the other stuff I was guilty of. In the midst of such pandemonium, they may have rushed out, threatening to live with the other woman forever. In desperation, we've even gotten tight ourselves, the drunk to end all drunks. The unexpected result was that our husband seemed to like it. <laughs> Perhaps at this point we got a divorce and took the children home to father and mother. Then we were severely criticized by our husband's parents for desertion. Usually we did not leave. Back in the, back in the day, Monty, they really didn't leave. You know, Today, today it's much easier to, to uh, um, uh, get a new plan, Stan. Yeah. And, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and i got to interject there. Um, I know there's times... That it just cannot be, cannot be changed, or the the relationship cannot. Uh, they're they're just not going to be restitution. I know that, but at the same time, I got to tell you, in sickness and in health, doesn't mean the flu. Yeah, it's you know very very true. Uh, to to be completely honest with you, you know I've I've had I've suffered I've suffered breakups. And, yeah, and this is only my own personal you know my own personal moral barometer. I I think that the only reason someone should leave is if you're getting really emotionally ill in a relationship. In other words, if you're deteriorating really, really badly and there's abuse and, uh, uh, and, and you're, you're suffering emotionally, if it's destroying you emotionally, I, you know, uh, I, I, think, I think with if that is going on, I can see, you know, one of my one of my sponsees leaving. But what what I hate to see, what I really hate to see, and this happens a lot, is the is the wife or the husband stick with the alcoholic through thick or thin. They get sober, and they meet somebody in the in the first year or two 
in the recovery fellowships and run off with them. Yeah, that's just I, sick. I mean, I, I've seen that happen time and time again, and you know that is that's that's not recovery. It, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you had a husband or a wife do that to you, you know, run off, you know, when they met somebody in their support group, understand that that's not recovery. That that's untreated alcoholism not being treated because. Uh, because there is there is uh, uh, an attachment to moral and spiritual values yeah. in a recovery program, yeah. and you're not just to leave because you're selfish and you want to leave, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you found a younger woman somewhere or something. That's that's not a good enough reason to leave. However, if you're you know if there's abuse, you know if there's violence, and if if you, if it's just day after day it's getting worse and worse emotionally and uh, you know you're really really becoming uh, uh, psychically ill because of a because of a relationship and that's usually because there's there's abuse or violence in it then you know um, uh, I, I can see that as a, sure. a valid reason for for separation well and that and even I've had this discussion with people before even even biblically you know I mean there are things, and I may be taking some liberty here, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, my wife told me one time, I, I said, well, at least I've never cheated on you. And she says, uh, she says, really? Um, isn't that bottle the other woman? <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's a relationship, all right, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. So, you know, we've got some making up to do. You know, we've got, you know, re- We'll be getting to the chapter, uh, the family afterward, uh, and you'll really see there's there's some reconstruction ahead. I mean, we've torn the house down, you know, timber by timber. Mm-hmm. We need to take responsibility for putting it back up. You know, that's recovery. You know, splitting and running is, is, is certainly not recovery. Right. So the women say, well, we stayed on and on. We finally sought employment ourselves as destitution faced us and our families. We began to ask medical advice on the spree as the sprees got closer. The alarming physical and mental symptoms, the deepening tale of remorse, depression, and inferiority that settled down on our loved one. These things terrified and distracted us. As animals on a treadmill, we have patiently and wearily climbed, falling back in exhaustion after every futile effort to reach solid ground. Most of us have entered the final stage with its commitment to health resorts, sanitariums, hospitals and jails. Sometimes there were screaming delirium and insanity. Death was often near. Now, um, you know, the the majority of alcoholics showing up in the support groups today have not gotten to this point. You know, there's there's all types of uh, uh, inter- intervention and awareness and stuff. It's not uh, it's not as dark of an illness as it was back in the day. But uh, but that happened to me. I mean, I was living in a house with my family, and I was getting to the point where I was having screaming delirium tremens, where I thought I was going to die, and I was hallucinating, and I was seeing things, mm. and I, I was convulsing, and, uh, you know, that that's an awful, awful position to put a family in. Um, uh, most most often today, people understand that, you you know, you call an ambulance, or you, you commit them, or you do something. Mm-hmm. Under these conditions, we naturally made mistakes. Some of them rose out of ignorance of alcoholism. Sometimes we sensed dimly that we were dealing with sick men. We have few, fully, had we fully understood the nature of the alcoholic illness, we might have behaved differently. Now that's an important tip there. Yeah. One of the things that um, one of the things that they do today is that they engage the family in treatment processes, and uh, there's almost always a reluctancy for the family to do that. They'll say, you know, I'm not the alcoholic, he's the alcoholic. Why do I have to do all this stuff? Well, because you need to understand how you can, how you can be more conducive to the recovery process. Mm-hmm. There's, there's attitudes and behaviors that you could have that could make things worse or that could make things better. And you don't know what they are because right. you have no understanding of alcoholism as an illness or recovery as a process. Yeah. So how you know how how much do you want your loved one to get better? If you really want your loved one to get better, you know, I, I would say take the time and participate in this stuff. Go to the family pro, family program. There's Al-Anon. There's Alateen. There's Alatot. There's Alat Dog. I mean, yeah, you there's know, you can Go to yeah. any of them. And, uh, 
and you can start to learn how to act, how to, how to think, and how to behave differently so that uh, the alcoholic has a better chance of uh, recovery. And you, and you know what, all joking aside, uh, I don't know how anybody would ever do how a pet, but all joking aside, <laughs> the, the pets in your family are affected by this drastically too. <laughs> you, you, you watch what happens to a dog who unconditionally loves uh, the dad or the, or the mom who, who is a raging alcoholic and watch what happens. Oh, it's so sad. Yeah. Monty, I had about a half a dozen cats back when I was drinking. They all ran away. I mean, I haven't had a cat run away in 20 years <laughs> since I've been sober. You know, I mean, they, they can they can pick up on, you know, the bad vibes pretty pretty quickly being yeah. an animal. Um, how could men who love their wives and children be so unthinking, so callous, so cruel? There could be no love in such persons, we thought. And just as we were being convinced of their heartlessness, they would surprise us with, a, with fresh resolves and new attention. For a while, they would uh, be their old sweet selves, only to dash the new structure of affection to pieces once more. Ask why they commenced to drink again, and they would reply with some silly excuse or none. It was so baffling, so heartbreaking. Could we have been so mistaken in the men we married? When drinking, they were strangers. Sometimes they were so inaccessible that it seemed as though a great wall had been built around them. Even if they did not love their families, how could they be so blind about themselves? What had become of their judgment, their common sense, their willpower? Why could they not see that drink meant ruin to them? Why was it, when these dangers were pointed out, that they agreed and then got drunk again immediately? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that, uh, that, you have to understand the first step. You have to understand powerlessness to be able to answer that question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. I'll tell you, one of the craziest things in the world is to explain to somebody, you know, uh, to talk to somebody about how awful, you know, alcohol is treating them. And then they, they agree with you, you know, and then get up and go to the liquor store. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, you bet. These are some of the questions which race through the mind of every woman who has an alcoholic husband. We hope this book has answered some of them. Perhaps your husband has been living in that strange world of alcoholism where everything is distorted and exaggerated. You can see that he really does love you with his better self. Of course, there is such a thing as incompatibility, but in nearly every instance, the alcoholic only seems to be unloving and inconsiderate. It is usually because he is warped and sickened that he says and does these appalling things. Today, most of our men are better husbands and fathers than ever before. And I believe that's, that's, that's true across the board for people mm-hmm. who found recovery. Try not to condemn your alcoholic husband, no matter what he says or does. He is just another very sick, unreasonable person. Treat him when you can as though he had pneumonia. When he angers you, remember that he is very ill. There is one important exception to the foregoing. We realize some men are thoroughly bad-intentioned and that no amount of patience will make any difference. An alcoholic of this temperament may be quick to use this chapter as a club over your head. Don't let him get away with it. If you are positive he is one of this type, you may feel you had better leave. Is it right to let him ruin your life and the lives of your children? Especially when he has before him a way of life, a way to stop his drinking and abuse if he really wants to pay the price. Okay, that's a that's that's a, an important paragraph. Hopefully, the alcoholic in the family has read this book. So you've you've showed them there is a way out. You know, are you willing to do this? Mm-hmm. And if the husband says no, I'm not willing to do it. You know, well, you need to now make the decision. Do you want to uh, you do you want to keep on till the till the bitter end, experiencing all the consequences mm-hmm. of a, a chronic slide, uh, a chronic alcoholic slide to death, or, you know, should, should you separate yourself and your family? And I think that's, you know, that's, each person has to come to their own. And I've known, I've known of, of, of uh, well, actually, uh, a gentleman whose wife is, uh, has that attitude, and uh, he believes in, uh, you know, the, I'm not going to divorce my wife, but, but he told her, he says, so if you're not even willing to try, she said, no. He says, then you cannot live in this house with the kids. You can't. It's unacceptable. And so she's, of course, she's determined she's going to continue to drink. So she moved out, you know. Um, but you have to set those those kind of boundaries. I mean, if you don't, you could end up, 
Right, you could wake up in the morning and and you know, mom could have backed over one of the one of your you know your two year old baby. I mean, you've got to take that you got to take that sickness sometimes and like a cancer, remove it from uh, the environment that it's in to save another person's life. Yeah, no doubt. Money, I burnt I burnt the house down. I was living in twice in the last five years of my drinking. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, you know, oh. Oh, Chris. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, I remember standing in the backyard watching the furniture being thrown out the second-story windows, smoldering, because yeah, that's what happened. You know, firemen went up into the house, hit it with the hose, busted out the windows, and started throwing all the smoldering furniture out of the house. And I remember standing in the backyard with my head against the tree, and one of the neighbors came over and said, Oh, this is just terrible. This is just terrible. Is there anything I can do for you? I, I handed him a $10 bill, and I said, Yeah, I need a fifth of whiskey. <laughs> could you? Could, I gotta stick around. Could you run up to the liquor store for me? <laughs> and and I thought that was like the most normal thing you sure. know to do. Uh, uh, unbelievable! You know the whiskey is what caused the fire. You know because you, mm -hmm. you get forgetful about where you leave your cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable! Oh, <laughs> really is unbelievable. It is. It's funny now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we we tell stories uh, in 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 some of the support group that you know if you were telling that same story, uh, uh, you know, at a, uh, a Knights of Columbus or something, you you would not get the you no. would not get the same. Oh, you burnt the house down twice! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark Lundholm, who is a good friend of mine, and he is uh, probably the the most sought-after uh, recovery comedian in, on the circuit as far as comedians go in recovery. And uh, he says, uh, you know, he'll, he'll go before an audience at, uh, of people in recovery. He says, how many here ever contemplated or attempted suicide? And usually there'll be quite a few hands that go up, <laughs> right? And their hands will go up and they'll start, yeah, yeah. And they'll start clapping, you know? And uh, uh, he, he says... Did you ever think that you would clap for that? <laughs> oh man, it is so true. But but again, you know that's a te that's a testimony uh, to the the power of recovery that that you can not regret the sh the past nor wish to shut the door on it. That's that right. You can use you know some of the worst things that happened to you as assets today in your life and in your work with other people. Uh, you know that that's that's good. I, there, some of the most tragic things that that happened to to, to me, Monty, were, you know, I can make I can make I can get a lot of laughs about them today. And, uh, yeah. Um, I think that's that's a good turnaround, really. You know, from, why 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 sit there regretting that stuff forever and ever and ever? You find when you go through the steps and you take responsibility for it, you can move away from it and be free of it. Mm -hmm. Then you can look back on it with a whole new pair of glasses. Yeah, that's right. You know, but um, uh, what we're gonna what we're gonna be covering uh, next week is uh, we're gonna get into the uh, the four types of drinkers slash mm -hmm. alcoholics. There is really really great information on describing uh, the progressive nature of the alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Now, this book is very much concerned with something no one is concerned anymore about in the fellowship. But what it's concerned about is it's concerned about uh, uh, making clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. Right. Okay? It's also very, very um, uh, involved in finding out where you are on the scale of alcoholism. No matter how far down the scale you've gone, you'll find your experience can benefit others. Your ability to quit drinking on a non-spiritual basis will depend upon how much how much power of choice you have lost in drink. Mm -hmm. There's all these quotes throughout the book, and they're hammering home the idea, basically, that some are sicker than others. And sure. I think it's incredibly important for you to know where you are on the scale. <clears throat> because what happens time and time again today is <clears throat> a really, really chronic alcoholic We'll come into a meeting where it's it's a it's a Bob Newhart gab session where everybody is heavy drinkers, you know, barely potential alcoholics, and they're not doing the steps. They have no service commitments. None of them sponsor. They just show up, uh, you know, every week to have the coffee and and you know catch up with their buds. Mm -hmm. And and a, a, a critic critical chronic alcoholic will show up in that group, and you know everybody will look at him like, you know. 
who's like, you know, wow, <laughs> what's yeah. wrong with him? You know, yeah. they, don't, they don't know what's wrong with him because they're, they've never experienced it. And they wonder, they, they just look at the guy because he, he relapses and figure, oh, he's just a loser. He just doesn't want it. Now, now, understanding where you are on the scale. Let's say, let's say, if you're a type type three or a type four, that's gonna that we're gonna discuss next week. You know, you can't be Bob Newhart in it. Okay. Yeah. You got to get involved with a group that gets that gets you uh, gets you into the steps. You know, into service and uh, and and on a path to recovery, or you're not gonna make it. Now, if you're somebody who's uh, who's a, an alcohol abuser who might have had a DUI or you know, your drinking's getting a little bit out of control, and some people are upset about it. So it's time to hitch up your bootstraps. You can go anywhere. You can go to any any meeting you you want to. Mm-hmm. But the big mistake happens today when someone who who's gone down the scale really far shows up, and nobody is ready to work with them. Yeah. Nobody's experienced enough to work with them, and that happens a lot today. And yeah. we'll we'll talk we'll talk about that at length. Uh, next week, I believe. All right. All right, good. Yeah, because people fall through the cracks a lot more than we want to admit. They really Way do. Way more than should be. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't have to. They don't have to. If we would uh, do a little investigation, I think I think some of it, uh, too, is, um, you know, with, the, with folks that have been around a while that actually know better, but they're just, you know, kind of tired or frustrated or whatever. It's like... You know, we talked about how free do you want to be? You know, re- really, how free do you want to be? And uh, so many people, they get to a point where they're like, you know, um, I've earned my my right to not work with anybody anymore. I've been doing it for years, and, you know, I'm just going to retire from that. And, that's and uh, I love what uh, uh, Pastor Mitch says. I'll tell you, you know, um, you know how many grandchildren Abraham had? You know, you know how old he was before he stopped playing with them kids. You know, there's no retirement here. Well, you know, if, if you don't have the time or inclination to sponsor somebody, uh, take them through the steps. That's fine. At least get them to somebody who will. Right. Right. You know, and and that doesn't happen that often. No. You know, in the rooms because it's completely misunderstood. Yeah. And uh, and you know whatever for whatever uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that you know there'll be a person or two. Who will listen to this that might be helped with uh, with the information that we're going to cover next week. Yeah, right on. All right, more great stuff. Remember, <laughs> folks, uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to be uh, making this available to you. It's already available to you. You get three free shows. And if you'd like to order this or pre-order it, uh, please contact me here at Take Twelve Radio at Comcast.net. Until our next broadcast. This is the Monty Man and Chris Schroeder, and we are wishing God's serenity for you. Bye-bye now. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. (laughs) 